Welcome to the Group Practice Exchange Podcast, a podcast for psychotherapy group practice owners. I'm your host, Maureen Warbach. Today's podcast is sponsored by Group Practice Builders. Group Practice Builders is a company that Michael Blumberg and I founded together, and the sole mission of Group Practice Builders is to provide training around the U.S. on starting a group practice and hosting a once-per-year Group Practice Owners Summit. This upcoming summit is coming up in July of 2019, and I'm really excited because today's podcast interview is with Mike Michalowicz of Profit First and Clockwork, and he'll actually be our keynote speaker at the Group Practice Owners Summit coming up in July. If you're interested in learning more about Group Practice Builders and the summit that's coming up, you can go to www.grouppracticebuilders.com backslash summit. All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Group Practice Exchange podcast. I am so excited. And as most of you already know, because I can't keep my mouth shut, uh, I have Mike Michalowicz on today. He's been on before when he talked about his book, Profit First, and today I have him on again to be able to talk about his newest book, Clockwork. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Maureen, and thank you so much for having me back. And hi to everyone. Uh, the familiar faces that I can't see, but can see me. It's good to see yes. you again, too. Yes, I'm, I'm really excited. I know you're busy and you're just said um, off the screen here that you're writing another book, which is amazing and yeah. probably going to make people really excited. I know you have that goal of 20, 25, 25 books. books. Yeah, I, I want to write. My goal is uh, is to write a compendium of books. My hope is before I leave this planet that uh, any entrepreneur that has a struggle, there'll be a solution that I can provide for them. And, yeah. you know, that's my that's my big, hairy, audacious, crazy goal. I, I love it. And I, I'm pretty sure you're going to achieve it. We'll say. We'll say. Yeah, it's a lot yeah. of writing. I'm starting a carpet. It is a lot of writing. So... <laughs> <laughs> um, so a lot of people in in my industry have started reading your book literally the week it came out. Um, but we, I know there's a ton that are in the midst of buying it um, because they know the value that you provided in, in your other books that you've written. And so for those that haven't yet gotten the book or haven't yet picked up and started reading the book, can you give us a little bit of a background on Clockwork and what, what it's about? Yeah. So I'll tell you how it came about because I think this is a good foundation of background. I started studying actually something that probably everyone's very familiar with, Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, which was relatively new to me. I've heard of it before. I didn't really understand it. And what I I learned is that there's this foundational need um, for humans to survive, which is oxygen, right? If we don't have oxygen, nothing is more important in the moment than getting air. Um, Then above it is like food and nutrition and shelter. And it goes all the way up to self-actualization. And that's not the exact breakdown. But that was my interpretation of it. And that if something, if we're deprived of a base need, we will revert all of our attention to getting that. Um, so if we, it could be, you know, pouring rain outside and we're in our shelter, but if there's no oxygen in the space we're in and we're gasping for air, we will evacuate the space, right? Right. I believe the same hierarchy of needs translates into business. And I believe the oxygen level for business is sales. Like everyone watching right now, if you don't have inbound sales, that's the oxygen for your business. You're not breathing. And so you need that. But the next level up to food and nutrition is profit. And sadly, what I found is many businesses, when they are wilting away, they are starving to death, meaning they need profit, actually focus on gasping for air, which of course won't solve it. They try to sell more and sell more, and they actually are starving more and more. Well, once we address profitability and have 
you know, permanent profitability, then the next level up is time. And most entrepreneurs, actually, we were talking off air, you, you have actually, you, you've navigated through this, but most entrepreneurs haven't yet, is that we are starved for time. We are working ridiculous hours. We are doing all the work ourselves. And the only way we can continue to elevate our business is by working harder. It's exhausting. The irony is the reason most of us start our business is to serve hopefully a purpose and impact we're trying to have on others and to achieve freedom, financial freedom, time freedom, but we're not. And so this clockwork I wrote specifically to get this next hierarchy of needs we have, the most important resource in the world, I believe, the most unreplenished or non-replenishable resource too. It's time. So clockwork, the subtitle is design your business to run itself. These are very specific strategies for the entrepreneur to remove themselves from doing all the work and move to designing a business that where they orchestrate the resources, the people, the software, the technology to get to the goals they want. Not by doing more work, but by designing other things and other people to do the work. Um, I think you're hitting the nail on the head with one of the biggest problems group practice owners have, which is um, they feel like, and I'm sure this is the same for other businesses, but um, they feel like even if it's not about the sales so much, um, they feel like they need to do more instead of what we'll talk about soon is delegating that time to someone else. They look at that short-term um, loss, which might be um, you know, not making uh, enough money because they have to use those financial resources to hire support. And they say, you know, I'll just do it. And I was just doing a one-on-one coaching yesterday with someone who needs to update their website because they've hired some people. And um, they're talking about trying to figure out how to make, how to use WordPress. And that's one of the things that um, I was not smart in my time five Mm. or six years ago. I learned how to use WordPress in Nevada and spent literally hundreds of hours. Um, And now I'm like, please just pay someone a couple thousand dollars. They will build it in a tenth of the amount of time that you would, it would take you to build it. But we are in this, this need of saving financially and just doing more instead of giving the, that's, those resources out to other people. Yeah, that's so, so many of us, and I've experienced this too personally, is as we start to grow our business off of our own efforts, we say, okay, I think I need to hire someone. We then look at our finances. I can't afford them. And therefore, the only thing I can do is work even harder, but that will bridge me. If I work a little bit harder, then I can hire someone. But the irony is the harder you work and maybe sales do grow, revenue grows, you still don't have enough. You actually will never have enough. And this, I talk about this in Profit First, this phenomenon called Parkinson's Law. Yes. Parkinson's Law is that as a supply increases, in this case revenue, our consumption of it increases at subconscious level. So more money's flowing in, but we're spending more money usually on ourselves. Our lifestyle increases a little bit. And we say, well, I, I can't compromise my lifestyle. Therefore, I can't hire someone. Yep. So, so we're in this trap. And there's a certain point you will hit the ceiling and the ceiling is you can't work any more hours. You're exhausted. And so what happens is we become resentful of our business. It sucks up all my time. It's not worth it and so forth. We do need to hire someone. But I found a technique, a very special kind of hack beyond just, just having the discipline of doing it. And the hack is this. Starting today, even though you don't necessarily plan to or can hire someone today, start paying their salary. Literally set up an account. I call it future employee. We have it here at our offices future employee and start paying that person, whatever that role is that you're going to hire. And maybe that person, I'm just picking a random number, maybe they get paid $50,000 a year. So start putting a part aside that money into this account. Now, here's what's going to happen. You're going to look at that account and say, 
I don't have enough money to afford this person. Even now I'm putting money away. That means you're not ready and we got to adjust our numbers. Or you start talking money away and say, oh, you know what? We actually can afford this, which surprisingly, I think most people will discover you actually can afford it when you think you couldn't have. Exactly. Right? So you start putting it away. The money starts accumulating. The beautiful thing is now you've proven the cash flow model, the thing that we're most concerned about without taking the risk of hiring someone. Now, when you go out and hire someone, the beauty is you already have money reserved for them. And maybe you did this for three months or higher, six months. You have a half a year salary saved up for them. So they have time to ramp. They don't have to come in day one and all of a sudden be making money and be a rainmaker and do amazing things. You have time to treat, teach them the right way to do the things right in your organization and they can grow into it. It's a much more uh, or less manic way of bringing someone on board and you've proven the finances. So that's the hack. Yeah, I, I love that idea. Um, one of the things that I've learned too, because our industry is a, a little unique in that when we hire therapists, it's pretty low risk because most people um, will pay a percentage of the income that's received. So if we make $150 for a client session, they get, let's just to make it easy, get 50%. So you pay them $75. Um, the risk, financial risk isn't so much there for clinicians for the most part. There are a few group practice owners who, who do a salary. It's very right. rare. Um, but for the most part, we do some version of, um, when income comes in, you see right. a client, you get paid for it. If you don't see clients, you don't get paid. You can do what you want. And so um, in terms of time investment as a group practice owner, because you brought up this resentment of overworking and group practice owners feeling like their biggest issue is seeing less clients to actually do more business work or f figure out what they want to do with their business. Um, even if it's in, like in my case was I wanted to see less clients, but also just work less, um, was I had this mental hack that just works in our industry because we tend to do this percentage-based thing with clients that are clinicians we hire is I said, all right, for every, for this first person I hire, for every two people that they see equals hundred percent of one client that I would see, right? Cause they're usually yeah. paid 50%. Every two clients they see, I'm allowed to stop seeing one less client. Oh it, yeah. So financially yeah. it doesn't make a change on my end. I'm not, get, I'm not getting more profits yet, yes. but that's the, the whole, um, uh, idea of short-term versus long-term gain. And there's no financial hit in the, in the short term. Um, because every time they got two new clients, I would reduce by one. They got two more, I would reduce by one. And then at some point I was as low as I wanted to be. And then every client thereafter that they got was profit for us. I love it. Yeah. And, and the funny thing, you know, what's happening too, of course, is the deduction of time. So every two for one, no financial impact, but a massive impact yes. on your time and reduction. Yeah. I, in, in clockwork, I ask us, uh, a, a hypothetical question or a rhetorical question because it's a book after all. I can't be responded to. But the question is, would you rather make $5 an hour or $100 an hour? And I actually riff on this a little bit on the audiobook, like we were talking about. Yeah. yeah, but he, here's the response that most people would make. I'd rather make $100 an hour. And at face value, absolutely, I'd rather make $100 an hour. But once we start qualifying those numbers, our perspective changes. I say, what if $100 an hour requires your raw effort? You just got to push and push to make that a reality. And what if $5 an hour was just handed to you? Every hour, someone gave you a $5 bill. How, what would you rather have? So I think some people still say, I'd rather have $100 an hour. It's significantly more. But you know, being able to sit on the beach drinking Mai Tais while I keep on getting paid $5 an hour, that ain't shabby. But what if that $5 an hour could be amplified to 10 or 20 or 100 or 1,000? Or what if it was unlimited? Right. What would you rather have? Now, clearly, I want unlimited money on automatic. 
And that's what you're designing, Maureen, and that's what we all can design. When we remove ourselves from the business and empower other people to do the work, the benefit to us from the financial perspective alone is money on automatic, and it can be scaled into perpetuity. Our own time is very limited. Right. But there's, there's one, there's one like roadblock that gets in the way, and it's, it's a little bit of a guilt factor. If I don't do the work and I make someone else do the work, and this is work, this is work that I don't want to do, I am now giving my crap to someone else. Mm-hmm. It's, it's how I felt in my own business. I'm like, oh, I don't want to be doing this work. And if I give it to someone else, it's just, it's a shame because I don't want to do it. Why would they ever want to do it? Yeah. Well, we have to realize as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, you are, we are really oddballs. Nine, 90% plus of the world population never will start a business, never desires to run the business, doesn't have the desire of any, you know, of any degree to start a business. We, we're the weirdos. The entrepreneurs and business owners, we are the weirdos. The, the rest of the world population just wants direction on a job. They just want to do what they want to do. Yeah. And they want to work within the confines of a well-structured organization. So we are actually empowering people. When we give people work, um, we can't see it as giving them something that we don't want to do. We have to see it as giving them something that they want to do. Yeah. And I think that's where looking at their strengths comes in to see you know, our, uh, our strengths and our likings. Um, I think you talk about this a little bit in the book, is that if, if it's something that we don't like doing or it's not our strength, it doesn't necessarily mean that someone else is going to hate it like we do, because if that is their strength and that just comes into the uh, recruiting and hiring uh, portion, um, is finding someone who does like doing that work and that is their strength. Yeah, that's exactly true. And, and you can think of some of the most rote work. So here we have um, my own office. We ship out a lot of uh, books. Um, we don't do all of it, but, but there's a certain component that we do a lot of shipping for. It is monotonous, repetitive work. Well, one of our colleagues here, she loves the work because she says, listen, I just want to, she works part-time. She works two or three hours a day. She says, I just want to disconnect and I want to be doing something that I just allow my mind to just kind of, uh, just kind of drift. And she goes, so I love this work. She, she realizes that it's monotonous and repetitive and you're not learning a new skill or anything like that. You just repeat it over and over. But she's like, this is actually forced meditation. I love yes. it. I was just going to say, I can actually appreciate um, her her thinking that way because it does let you kind of let go of the hard mental work. And, and you talk about this as well, is it's like energy to to think. Um, and so if, if she gets to, I'm sure she's doing a lot of thinking in other areas. If she's working two to three hours a day, she's doing a lot of other things in her day. Yeah. Uh, I can appreciate the value of some forced relaxation time, get in the groove, maybe listen to some music and, and get going. Yeah. 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 You know, the, the flip side though is us as business owners, we got to be very careful about that mode too, because it is easier to do work yeah. than it is to design work. Yeah. Uh, the example I use in the book is like, if, if you were given you know 10 minutes to dig a hole in the yard or solve a Rubik's cube, mm-hmm. what would you do? Yeah. And ironically, most people say, I'd rather dig the hole because you can see the progress immediately. It's repetitive tasks and you'll get a result. The Rubik's cube, you get into it and you're like, oh, and you get so frustrated. It's like, ah, we'll give up and run out and start digging that hole. So it's actually easier to do work than it is to think about the work and, and, and think at a very high level yeah. to choreograph our business. So most of us actually revert to the simple stuff of just doing, you know, you see a patient, you feel the reward. Hey, so a patient had a great session. I made an impact. And we feel that little 
adrenaline boost in the second. So we think that's good work. But actually, the better work is coordinating all the resources so our organization can have that same impact, not ourselves directly. Requires a lot of it, to your point earlier, requires a lot of energy, that thinking time, but it's what we have to move to. Yeah. Um, You bring up another piece that kind of relates to this, but is on the other end of the spectrum, which is um, when it comes to letting things go and giving it to other people is the uh, the ego and what it means when, or what we might feel when we do give a lot away and we feel that financial, or that financial freedom and time freedom is, um, what are they going to think now I'm doing in my business? Or, um, you brought an example. I think you were in Australia or something and oh, yeah, yeah, all yeah. of a sudden started sending a lot of emails. And I can appreciate that because I've done that before when I've been on vacation and nothing's coming in. Um, there's a immediate sense of, that's awesome. There's no uh, crisis happening. And then like, what the hell are they doing over there? Like, is there something I can, you know, because I want to feel important and valued. And I think this happens with every business owner from time to time. It ebbs and flows where you want to feel important and not feel like they might be thinking what, you know, I don't need her. She, I could do what she's doing. You know, she's not doing anything. That's Um, so funny. Yeah. So, uh, the first challenge I had as I was removing myself from the business, and, and as I wrote Clockwork, I used my own business as a guinea pig. Uh, we're small. We have 10 employees here. Um, but uh, I always use myself as a guinea pig. And first, the first challenge was, if I'm not actively here, if I'm not actively in the business, are my employees going to resent me? They're going to say, you know, Mike makes all the money sitting home smoking cigars, and I'm working for him. Screw him. Um, which is a real possibility without education. So what I did with my team is saying, listen, the goal is to elevate the company, which means every person here has an opportunity to step up to the next level. And you'll be rewarded accordingly, financially, position-wise, experientially. Um, That's why I'm trying to remove myself. I said, but our biggest roadblock from pulling this off is not you guys, it's me. Can I actually remove myself and stop trying to be a superhero, fly in, fix the problem? Because that's feeding my ego. Mm-hmm. So they they were prepared to say, if Mike's swooping in, you know, shoot him down before he tries to fix things, <laughs> so we can step up. Yeah. So I let the I put that in place. I went to Australia for two weeks, total disconnect. Um, I was checking email occasionally, even though that was against my rule. I was breaking my own rule and just saying, well, let me just see what's going on. Yeah. Then the biggest roadblock I didn't expect was another version of my ego, which was exactly what you shared that they didn't need me. There yeah. was no communication, nothing. Yeah. And for about 10 seconds, I felt great. Like, wow, something's good. And then I said, well, clearly something's bad. And uh, <laughs> they're, they're dying and they're, they're too embarrassed to tell me. And so I start firing off questions. What's going on? Where are things? And they responded. Um, and I started throwing monkey wrenches into it. And after I came back and we did a debrief with my team, I actually started unwinding significant progress because I had this compulsion to be needed. Mm-hmm. Here's what I found. The solution for me is I can't, suppress my ego and say, you know, I'm ego free. I I think that's nonsense for myself. And I think it's nonsense for many of us. But what I can do is redirect my ego. So I took that that need to feel important and just shifted to a new place. I said, I'm I'm not going to feel important the need to feel important by swooping in and doing stuff. Because now I realize I mess things up. I'm going to be important by making our organization super fluid, by elevating people, uh, by by helping people rise up in the moment. That's going to be my new role. And if I do that, that's where I'll feel satisfaction. So I just kind of rechanneled my ego. Yeah. And that that's now a year plus ago. It's been working. It's been that's working. That's awesome. That's good to hear. And I think we'll be uh, validating for people who are in this beginning process of implementing clockwork. 
Um, yeah. So I wanted to jump into a cu- the, there's a couple of big themes in your book, one being the queen bee role. Yeah. And um, you can talk a little bit about what that means, but I know that this is an area that even, even myself who I was like, I, I know what my queen bee role is. And I, I did it all and I, I wrote it out and um, I wanted to, you know, I tend to be one that thinks things and doesn't write them. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Because I think that I, I, I just, I know it. I don't need to go through the process. <laughs> and I really, with clockwork, went through. I mean, with profit first, I knew I didn't know what I was doing, so I went through everything. But with clockwork, when I read, I was like, that makes sense. I'm, I'm doing a lot of that. Um, and then until I started writing it down, and I'm whiting out things. And um, yeah, 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 but what yeah. I'm noticing is that people who are do, doing the queen bee role exercise right now is that they're having a really hard time because in our industry, the obvious answer that pops up as the queen bee role is to see clients. Yeah. A group practice does not function if we don't see clients, yeah. right? That's the whole, yep. every group practice is very different, but at the end of the day, it funnels down to therapists who see clients. Yep. And so the assumption is that, and that's where, I, that's where I got to initially. And then all of a sudden I was looking and I'm like, well, um, there are so many other little things that might not be in the uh, immediate sense what creates revenue, but that plays a huge role in the clinicians seeing clients, yeah. Um, which sounds like is the end answer. And so um, just I'm, I'm kind of moving forward with this, but give a quick rundown of what Queen Bee role is and maybe what are some of the common things that you see? Because I'm sure there's a ton of people who make assumptions of, well, obviously Queen Bee role is sales or obviously yeah. Queen Bee role is this thing. Yeah. Yeah. And often when it's obvious, it's not the right answer. So uh, let me explain what the queen bee role is. I I was trying to find the common thread for business efficiency. I couldn't find it in an organization. It's not easily. I found it in beehives, but this does translate to all businesses. Beehives are extremely efficient. The core function of a beehive that its survivability and therefore thriveability depends on is the production of eggs. Because beehives, uh, bees live on an average like six to eight weeks. So there's constantly turnover. And bee, so the production of eggs are critical. The bee that serves that role is called the queen bee. She produces eggs. One of the big challenges, and I, I hope people understand this from the book, is I am not suggesting the queen bee is the most critical bee. She serves the most critical function. But the queen bee role is a function, not an individual. If the queen bee is failing to produce eggs, she is removed from the the hive, a new queen bee is spawned, and the function continues on. Every bee knows that if eggs aren't being produced, we have an issue, and they all have a role in it. They defend the hive so eggs can be produced. They heat or cool the hive. They collect food. Everything goes to serving that role. Uh, And once that role is functioning, then the bees can do their other other benefactors or other benefits to, to the hive. But that queen bee role must be served. Every organization has a critical function that hinges its success on. Again, it's not a person, it's a function. And in businesses, it's often served as a business grows by multiple people. I think the best example, and I didn't include this in the book, and now I'm almost thinking of like on the next publication release, I'm going to include this, is an example of FedEx. Because FedEx is a world-recognized brand, so we can all kind of relate to it. But it applies to small business too. FedEx has a brand promise, and we all have to be aware of our brand promise. What's a brand promise? This is the thing, the primary thing that the customer buys from us. Why do we buy FedEx? Well, the reason we use their services is because when your packages absolutely, positively must be delivered you know, tomorrow, it'll make it happen. That's their commitment, is on-time delivery of packages. 
we have to peel the onion back one layer from the promise and say, what's the one core function, queen bee roll, that is making that promise a reality? And for uh, FedEx, it is the logistics. It's the movement of packages. If, if FedEx says, you know what? Let's not worry about the movement of packages anymore. Let's worry about customer service. Let's have extraordinary customer service. You know, people may notice, oh, wow, they're super friendly now when you call their customer service line. But when packages aren't being delivered on time, FedEx is out of business. Mm -hmm. They know that that role has to be protected. So much so, by the way, whenever it's threatened, there's too much demand or something, they address it. And it happens every year. The Christmas holidays, the winter holidays happen. What happens? Huge demand in shipments. And so FedEx sends more people out on the road. Managers don't yell at their drivers to drive faster. They, the managers, jump in the trucks too, and they're driving down the roads delivering packages. In our business, we have to be very clear is what is the primary thing customers are buying from us. If your answer is they buy a million things, friendly staff, professional service, uh, wonderful experience, affordable prices, all those are factors, but there's only can ever be one most important thing. What's the most important thing? What do you stand out on? Because some people on this video know who I am. Um, you know, I'm an author of many books. My brand promise is to make complex business topics very simple. That's what I do. I do speaking, I write books, I do all these different things that support it. Um, and maybe some people find the books entertaining. Some other people think uh, it's, it's very theory-based. But my biggest goal is to make complex things simple. That's my promise. Peel back the onion. What's the one primary thing that makes that a reality? I started talking about that. You know, I do speaking activities or functions. I do podcasts and videos like this. I write books, so all these different things. While they're all significant, only one thing can be the most important thing. I went through the sticky note exercise, which I explained in the book. And if I peel away all the things, the one most important thing I do is write books that make complex topics sim simple. That's my queen bee role, is to write really powerful, extraordinary books. And if I'm, my team knows if I am doing too much speaking or if I'm traveling around too much and I don't have time to write, we're actually compromising our entire business. That's like FedEx throwing logistics out the window. Right. So my team here protects me for writing time. And that's what I need to do. Now, the final step of the queen bee role, and this is a choice, is we as the owner do not have to serve it. I don't have to be the one writing the books forever. I can outsource that in some way. Now, that's a big risk. Uh, and it may be something that I don't even desire to do. Maybe I love it so much. And right now I do. I don't want to not write books. But I am making an active choice. The risk I'm running, of course, is the day I... I'm injured, tired, sick, disabled, die, whatever. The entire business is over. The second I can't produce, the entire business is over. So I am making a cognitive decision to serve the queen bee role, but the business's his has, uh, success is hinged on me now. And there will be a point where I say, okay, how do I extract myself out and still produce books that deliver extraordinary, simple concepts? And um, one way that I'm starting to explore this, by the way, is the production of what's called derivative books. So I wrote Profit First, but now there's other authors that are writing Profit yeah. First for therapists. That yeah. one's not out yet, but yeah. Profit <laughs> First. I'll write that one. <laughs> yeah, if you want to, uh, we're looking for someone. So Profit First for um, you know for e-commerce providers, Profit yeah. First for dentists. Those ones are in the works, and we're looking for more people. And that's now allowing simple concepts to continue to perpetuate out there but I am not serving the role alone. Now other people are filling that role. That's really smart. It's uh, uh, similar in, I, with the, the few businesses that I have with urban wellness, I don't 
serve the queen bee role. I love it. Yeah. Um, at all. But with the group practice exchange, which is is what I'm doing with you here, is it, it is me. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm I consult and help other people start and grow group practices through podcasting. I have a membership site and some e courses and stuff. It's all done by me. I have VAs and people who help answer emails and do you know some of the logistical pieces. But I'm the one delivering the goods, so to speak. Yeah. Um. So there will obviously be a point in that specific business where I have to make some shifts as well. Um. But going in line with um, who, who's listening, which is group practice owners, m- most of them, uh, depending on what they choose as the queen bureau, which I think is an important thing to note for people who are listening, because that's I, I'm seeing, um, I have a Facebook group with um, a few thousand people in there. It's all group practice owners. Yeah. And they're talking about it right now. And a lot of what they're getting stuck on is everyone's coming to the end uh, result with their um, analysis as that seeing clients is the queen bee role, which some of them see clients still, some of them don't, but they have lots of therapists who do. And, um, and so this is kind of the, the, the air place that we're at and maybe getting the okay from you so that they can let go is that not every, I, I think a lot of times in, in my, you know, cohort of people that are group practice owners is looking for validation from each other and, and, yeah. and all that is that um, people aren't thinking very creatively and go are going to that easy answer and feel like yeah. we all should have the same queen bee role. And um, like I said, I, my first initial queen bee role in doing all of this yeah. was see clients. And then all yeah. of a sudden I was like, or is it these things? And so I love all it. the positions, me, what I do, and you can see where I X the first thing off that I can let go of the second thing. You know, I went yes. through the process, my clinical director, my receptionist, admin clinicians. And um, what I'm finding out is that we have a pretty it's it's complicated on our end but it in terms of how I set it up but it's simple to now do is our receptionist we have a multidisciplinary practice which means we have a nurse practitioner who does medication management people who do psych testing and we have 23 or 4 therapists who do counseling some for kids some for adults some for couples mm-hmm. some for families some who do art therapy some who do dance movement therapy like literally everything. I hire someone who's very specific in their niche and they only see like that type of client, but I've put together a group that embodies a lot so that um, our goal is really to help members of our community thrive. And so we want to take into account, you know, as many of the members as we can. So each person is very specific, but the group as a whole sees a lot. And so we've had in the past it's been really hard to see which clinician should this client go to if they have multiple issues, depression, anxiety, or they have some trauma history, but they also have substance abuse. Um, and so I've spent a lot of time making my website very intuitive where we have a lot of service pages that are very clear that kind of drop down, drop down, drop down to this is a therapist that's good for you. And um, when they talk to our receptionist, she goes through a very um, – mm-hmm. 15 minute process of really homing in on what their big, their big issue is. Cause there's sometimes one issue core issue, but then a lot of presenting things that are just in the front that's surface. Um, but I'm finding out that I think the queen bee role is that specific process because it affects retention rates with clinicians, clients who come in and see a therapist who they end up not liking and are like, no, that's not my style. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Right. Maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. And so your experience with the queen bee role and discovering it is, I think the typical experience, there's an obvious common answer. Mm -hmm. uh, We need to see patients. And then there's the 
obvious, but more actually impactful activity that we need yes. to discover. And that's what you did with selecting. I'll give you an example, but I, I want to try to, I don't know the therapy business that yeah. well, but um, for example, if, uh, if you're, you see as a therapist, your organization sees a child, one of the things could be improving the child's mental health, right? Mm -hmm. But another way to look at it is maybe children are coming to you, not because the child has a challenge that they're facing, but maybe it's actually the parents yes. misunderstanding. So therefore, your queen bee role may be the communication actually the parents may even supersede the therapy the child's receiving. Now, I'm not saying that therapy is not important for that child. Right. But what I'm saying is there actually may be a role that's even more important uh, the communication with the parents in that case. Mm -hmm. We have the right and the ability to decide it. Let me give you another example outside of the industry because I think when we look outside our industry, sometimes it's the shock of cold water to our face to, to open our eyes to our own industry. Mm -hmm. uh, baseball. I, I put the story in the book. I was studying baseball teams and the standard obvious answer for a queen bee role is to, the brand promises a winning team. So it's players that win. Best players that make a winning team. That's what every single baseball team typically does. And so they all compete. And only one ever can be the best at, of course, the one that wins the World Series or the championship or whatever. But every team is trying to hire or get the best players to win. There's one baseball team that has thrown that out the window. And they came up with a brand new brand promise and therefore a brand new QBR. Uh, this team, before I reveal them, they are the only team, I believe, in recent history, maybe even in world history, to sell out three consecutive seasons where every single seat is physically sold out, meaning full attendance in surplus of what the stadium can hold. Um, this team is called the Savannah Bananas uh, in, in Savannah, Georgia. And what the owner did, his name is Jesse Cole, they made a declaration saying, we're not going to be the winningest most baseball team. We don't care about that. What we care about is to be the most entertaining baseball team of all time. And by doing this, that's a promise. They, they promise that when you go to a Savannah Bananas baseball game, you will be entertained like nothing else. Nothing else. They did what they should. They, they picked a really good QBR because baseball games are so boring. Baseball is so boring, right? So they yeah. picked that. That's their promise. The QBR or the activity that supports that commitment is thinking up new ideas. Mm -hmm. So I'd argue that, that Savannah Bananas QBR is spending a day a week thinking about new ways to entertain people mm -hmm. because, you know, a baseball season in their league can go for 40 games or 30 games. Could you imagine seeing the same entertainment over and over? Even yeah. if it's so radical, I think the 30 or 40th time you see the same thing, it gets a little bit boring. Yeah. So it's, it's cube. Their QBR is the generation of new entertaining ideas in delivering it. And, uh, they do like outrageous things. I went to a game and they, uh, they did this thing called the banana in the pants where, they yell, they announce we're going to do the banana in the pants and, and patrons in the stadium run to the upper decks and they grab bananas, start throwing them off the deck as the baseball players have these huge pants trying to catch the bananas. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. It's funny. Um, they hired a baseball coach who knows how to moonwalk. And the first base coach, when he's doing his signals, he's moonwalking, dancing. You're laughing in tears as they call out plays. It's unbelievable the stuff that they do. Every game is so entertaining, so much so that I had to go down there. I went to a game. I had to experience this. I experienced it. As I was walking out of the stadium, I asked a guy. I was so entertained. I didn't even see what the final score was. <laughs> and I said, hey, and he had, a, he had a Savannah Bananas tattoo on his shoulder. So I'm like, he'll know what the score was. I said, what was the final score? He's like, I don't know. He goes, that was an awesome game. And he went running off to watch a uh, marching band that was then coming through. 
the, the final thing, I didn't share this in the book. They don't even have a functioning scoreboard. This is a baseball stadium with 5,000 people. And the scoreboard, you see this big scoreboard up there? It doesn't run. They don't track the, they don't track the score of the game. It's unbelievable. It's the antithesis of baseball. And they've become the most popular baseball team in their league ever as a result. This is my challenge to everyone watching. The obvious answer is to win more games. Yeah. The obvious answer is to see more patience. I get that. And that's true, but only if you want to compete with everyone else on the same platform. What is the real promise you're making? What's the real commitment? Why are customers really coming to you? Now, what's the one thing that can drive that? And, and you know, that's not just seeing patience. Maybe it's communication with customers. I, I don't know. Maybe it is entertainment. doesn't sound right, but maybe. <laughs> yeah, which would be interesting um, as I'm thinking through more on this is that the like the queen bee person would then be the admin because the person who's answering the phone, which is uh, goes against everything I would have ever thought. And um, and so I, I agree with you. It, we need to challenge the listeners not to go to that obvious answer because for me, because I have a large practice with a lot of people and um, I track met- metrics, I'm a numbers person. I like to see what's working and what's not. So I have various metrics, which was awesome um, when when going through your ACDC um, oh, yeah. formula because I was like, I got uh, my metrics fit perfectly into your, you know, oh, I never had a, yeah, I had never had a where it's supposed to go. I just tracked certain things that would help me know if my marketing was working and uh, help me know if the clinicians that I have are providing quality services and stuff. But um, it easily fit into the A and I have two for each one. It was just, oh, nice. it worked out perfect. Um, but I think pe- I think that people need to uh, truly understand that the easy answer might not be it and that it actually sets you apart a lot because now if I really focus not so much on the clinicians, um, but focus on the admin and helping her uh, come up with processes that really help uh, home in on who the best therapist is for them because our therapists are all amazing. I know that because I hired them. I I don't hire people that don't do amazing clinical work, but that doesn't mean that sometimes when I used to see clients that I wouldn't get a client that um, fit in some ways, but didn't in others and didn't see me for very long because we just didn't match. It didn't mean it was because I was a bad therapist, but maybe it was my style. Maybe it mm-hmm. was um, my my theory, what theory I used. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it was because they came in uh, seeing me in my specialty. I work, uh, I see one client a week now only just to hold on to it. Yeah. Um, but it's entrepreneurs. I do counseling with entrepreneurs who have life balance issues. And so nobody comes to me, nobody asks to see me if they're not an entrepreneur, I'm very clear everywhere that they can see on our website. I work with entrepreneurs. Um, but I think, you know, truly the QBR would be in my business is providing accurate referrals to the right therapist. Because at the end of the day, that's a trickle down effect to the clients yeah. truly getting the help they need from their clinicians. You can't yeah. just throw a client to any therapist in my practice. It might not work. Yeah. And the QBR does not need to be the most time-consuming thing, meaning if your organization spends the majority of its time seeing patients, which right. I know it does, yeah. it doesn't mean it's the QBR. The fact that, the, the, it's the thing, what has the biggest impact on your reputation? Yes. That's the QBR, the activity that has the biggest impact on your reputation. And clearly, yeah. that's the thing. Yeah. That is for, for me. So um, I'm excited to see what people come up with because uh, our Facebook group is pretty interactive. So people are posting their QBRs. I'll be really interested to see after they hear this, 
what adjustments they've made because um, kind of like mission statements and values, you can't, you don't want to have the same one as all your neighboring group practice owners because it doesn't set you apart. And I think that's the same for the QBR. Um, so thank you for coming up with a very easy process to, to thinking about it. Cause I, I would have said before this book, I already know what mine is. And now. Yeah. 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 Good, good. And kudos to you for challenging your notions, right? That's the other challenge that I've had uh, in myself is, well, I, I, I'm right because it's the way I've always done things. And I get entrenched in my own thinking to, to really reconsider and challenge our own thoughts. is, is not easy. So kudos to you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so the last uh, piece that I wanted to, to talk with you about is the 4D um, since that kind of is the next, I don't know, I find them equally important, but there was the next, the next piece in, mm. um, in, in the clockwork uh, book. And yeah. um what I found is one, I hate tracking my time. And when I got to that part of the book, I was like, Oh, he's making me track my time. And Oh yeah. 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 So I truly, truly did it for the first time ever because there's a lot of books that talk about tracking your time. Um, yeah. Yours goes into a much b- better reason to track yeah, yeah, your yeah. time with the four D's. Um, cause m- most other books want you to track your time cause they, it's the whole time management thing, which. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so with tracking time, um, I think this is where we'll vary a lot in our industry because I have a lot of group practice owners who are new, which means that they're doing a lot more of the doing and uh, their 4D mix when they have maybe one or two therapists is a lot of do and very little of um, de- delegating and design. Um, whereas in my business with it being so large and I, like I mentioned off air, I do about 10 hours of work in this business. Um, most of those hours are designing. So my design looks uh, like that. And then I have a little bit, so I have a little bit, I only do 10 hours. So it's very easy to look like I do a lot of do, but I think that was like a couple of hours of doing Um, my goal now is to get rid of, and I know exactly what I need to do. But um, so I think for these larger group practices that are listening, they, um, I, I found it useful to separate my time with the whole company. So I have one with the whole company as a whole, including me in there. Mm-hmm. But I think it skews the data a little bit because my when you look at my overall company now, it looks like I have uh, 96% due and like nothing else of, you know, my this is all me pretty much, my 10 hours. But mm-hmm. we do about 2,000 hours of counseling. So that very mm-hmm. easily makes it look like we have way too much due. Um, but like what we were talking about before the recording is it helped me see that there's even more of a process I can put in place to just tick that do over a little bit more Mm -hmm. by having this um, almost like this pyramid where I have more support. And I know people who are listening are going to think that's kind of crazy because they think I already have so much support. When I talk about just the level of established I am as a group practice owner, I have a lot of support. I have a practice manager, a clinical director, I have reception, VAs, um, Facebook ads, people, people who email company who sends my emails for me. Um, but after reading your clockwork book, and this is something that I, I said to my listeners, I was going to make a reveal at some point with this is that I've to, to put myself one, um, one degree further. Cause right now I'm one degree away from all the clinicians. Yeah, so they yeah, often come to me. Um, they might bypass my clinical director to ask me a question. So that's where my do is, is usually cause I'm in the office doing other work and they'll come and ask me questions because the clinical director is not here and instead right. of emailing her or waiting, they're like, eh, come into you. Um, but what I think 
is in learning uh, through your book and the 4D mix and just the rest of it is getting myself even one degree further that lets me do even more of the design. Out of all my 10 hours, I would love to have 10 hours of design. Right now, it's five out of 10. So 50% of my time is design. Um, but I want to use all my time designing because that's what I love. Yeah, yeah. Is, is to have that degree removal and have the clinical director who um, is right below me who kind of really manages everything. But then to have supervisors under her who manage the clinicians. And so the clinical director manages the supervisors who manage the clinicians. And that removes me a little bit more so that there's several layers they have to go through before, you know, coming to me. And I think that's the biggest take back I, uh, or take out I learned from your. Yeah. Well, I love that you use the buzzword. You said it's fun. Like I, design work is fun. Yeah, totally. I think many business owners, entrepreneurs never realize how much fun it can be because they never mm-hmm. experience it. Right. Right. So they're always doing and uh, they never design. And when they do, it's out of urgency and panic. So it doesn't feel yep. fun. It's like, oh, yes, totally. Yeah. So there's actually a, re- uh, a resentment or resistance to it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. good. Well, I think the other thing that was interesting in your story is how much time is spent doing in your organization. It, what I applied in this book is the Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule, mm-hmm. and found that most organizations, about 80% of the work that's done in the organization is the activity of delivering the service to the client or the activity that supports the delivery of, of activities to the client. Mm-hmm. That's what I call doing. So invoicing is doing, marketing yeah. is doing, admin is doing, seeing patients is doing, all that stuff is doing. The other levels, deciding is is a dangerous trap. It needs to be done, but we'd be very cautious about it. Deciding is where I really task rabbit someone. You tell me, hey, Mike, do this uh, task right now, write some invoices and get it done. And then I come back to you with questions as I'm doing the process. So you have to make decisions, which is extremely distracting for you, the business owner. And you're really not empowering me whatsoever. You're just telling me to do tasks. Mm-hmm. Many businesses get stuck in this deciding phase. Yeah. And it becomes frustrating because we hire two or three people and at a certain point, we realize we can't get any work done because I have to make all these decisions for everyone else. It's, it's frustrating. And the danger is then we'll say, you know what? I can do everything myself better anyway. Let me just fire everyone. Everyone mm-hmm. else is an idiot, yeah. right? And then we go back to doing the work ourselves and then get overwhelmed and frustrated again. And it, it's this flip-flop between doing and deciding. Mm-hmm. Next level up, delegation. Delegation is the assignment of outcomes. And so few entrepreneurs realize this. Yeah. We believe that delegating is the assignment of tasks. That's not. That's, that's the deciding phase. That's task rabbiting. Delegation is saying, like Maureen, you could say to me, instead of invoicing, you could say, it's important that we uh, bill our, our patients in a timely and accurate manner. You're going to be responsible for this. Do you understand what we're looking to do? Bill the outcome timely, accurately. I acknowledge it. Then you say, okay, Mike, now as you get us there, uh, if you have challenges or questions or problems, I've hired you for your head. Make decisions that you feel are in the best interest of our organization to receive to re- achieve that outcome. And we have some best practices. This is historically how we've done our invoicing. This is how, historically how we do stuff. Here's our tools. Now, when I come in for a question, say, you know, I don't know what to do this step. We, as the entrepreneur, have to say, remember, I hired you to make decisions. So you're facing a challenge now. Make a decision that feels in the best interest to achieve that outcome we agreed mm-hmm. to. Here's the cha- this is the most difficult part. If you empower me to make decisions and I make a wrong decision, like I really messed something up, you still have to reward me. That's yep. the challenge. Yep. You can say, hey, Mike, you know what? Uh, we didn't get the result we wanted. But the fact you made a decision that you felt was in the best interest of the company, that's what we wanted. Good job, Mike. Now go fix this. Make some more decisions. But good job for messing up. I that's- loved reading that. When I read that, I was like, I, I, I was just mind blown. Yeah. Um, 
And, and it's funny because it kind of relates to my clinical director who I very much thought I was delegating to for the longest time. And really it was all deciding type stuff. She yeah, was, yeah, yeah. It's classic. She was like a middle person to between me and the clinician. So I would say, oh, this person's retention seems pretty low. Let's see if there's, maybe they're getting the wrong kind of referrals or maybe they're having a hard time connecting with clients. Maybe they need some more training. Uh, and then she would do it. And then she would come back to me and say, you know, what was happening. And then I would give her more feedback on how to like shift it some more. Um, and we sat down because she went to a clinical director's uh, training that I found and I've been looking for years. There's not any uh, around for mental health clinical directors. There's, you know, hospital clinical directors, but not for mental health specific practices. I found one, she went to it. And one of the things that she had learned there was, um, you know, that she can truly be in charge, essentially is just truly be in charge of things. And then when uh, I had read this book, I sat down with her and said, you know, you, there's no decision that you can make truly in, in what your decisions you're that fall under your job description that will ever break the business. You mm-hmm. can, you know, there's nothing, everything that I do is, is, are the things like that might potentially make a big, a big uh, dent in the business negatively or positively. There's a book I read that uses the tree analogy. Um, I'm forgetting the name of the book now. But the tree analogy is leaf level things are, are things at the top here that anyone can do once you tell them to do it. And they don't need to check in with you. It's very simple, pro- mm. simple things. And then branch level things are the things that you have to train them on. But once they do it, they don't have to get feedback from you either. But it takes a little bit of training. The trunk level are things that um, can make a slight difference in your business if done wrong. So you might have a month, those are like those monthly or quarterly meeting type things where you sit down and you make the decision together and then they go and do it. And then the root level are those um, things that can make your business go bankrupt or fall right. apart. And so those are the decisions. Nobody makes these decisions without checking in with me, whatever it is. And there's usually just like one or two of, you know, those are the big things. So it kind of goes in line with what you were saying. I like to look at that tree analogy and be like, you know, Lauren's my clinical director. You know, a lot of what she does is trunk level, leaf level yeah. the clinicians. They can see clients. They don't have to tell me how they're doing therapy. I trust them to do it the right way. Yeah. But she's like trunk level. So we meet once a month I for love an hour that. and that's it. And she can make those decisions. I love that analogy. Yeah. And what's interesting is the, the challenge that your organization's facing is there's too much doing. So yeah. you, I, I would investigate bringing on what I call an integrator, someone that can take your ideas, play buffer between you and the organization mm-hmm. uh, and, and be the, you know, the president who's actually making sure stuff gets done, but is also connected with your vision and working collaboratively. The interesting thing is m- most organizations your size start flopping too much to the design side and not enough doing yeah. um, where you get too many chefs, chefs in the kitchen, yep. but most small practices, if, if it's just you and a couple of therapists, or whatever, inevitably way too slanted toward doing. It's just like, let's get more done. Let's get more done because they think that growth comes from just doing, 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 and they're just growing leaves, right? Yeah. There's no, no root system. There's no trunk. So what we need to do is very quickly in ourselves, allocate, commit to allocating a portion of our time to just thinking. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the greatest irony. This already happened the day before everyone opened their business and the, the month and weeks before. We put so much thought into the business. We had the vision of what it would be like. We could, we could even see the, the space we had where we, our practice is. We could, we could smell the space. We could, we could see the patients coming in and the impact we we're having, all these wonderful things. We could see the, the money that it was paying us and the freedom it gave us to, to experience life in other ways, travel and, and you know, escape and all this. Then the day the business starts, 
the oh shit moment happens. There's no patience. Oh my God, I need money. Desperate, desperate, desperate. And we start staying in this desperation mode. We need to get back to that visionary mode of what it's going to look like, complemented by strategic and tactical decisions that make that a reality. Mm-hmm. You know, what do we need to do? Do we need to focus on a different type of patient base? Um, is one of our therapists not performing as well as we expected? Um, m- maybe we're not. Maybe our issues is the last C in the ACDC model, and we actually have collections issues. We don't know how to process insurance claims efficiently, efficiently whatsoever. Yep. We have to figure out strategically and tactically where the roadblocks are to getting to that vision. And most business owners aren't doing that. Most business owners are just, I'll see another patient. I'll do another day. And that stuff keeps getting put off. And then we're frustrated that our vision never comes true. It's because yep. we're not working on it. We need yeah. to work more on it. I agree. That's why I love the design process because those are the things I do. Um, like I mentioned earlier, I love metrics and I have yeah. a metric for seeing um, if our revenue per session is going up. I have a metric to see if I'm utilizing office space most efficiently because that's another way to grow revenue without mm. spending more money. I, I have an amazing uh, office space spreadsheet that looks at every and I uh, every hour, every half hour, I should say, Monday through Sunday. We use the office every day of the week, all both all of our offices. Love it. I love uh-huh. it. And um, one of the things that I came up with is that for me, a well utilized office is seeing eight clients a day in it. So that includes because clients sometimes no show. We about ten percent of our caseload in private practice all around the world. About ten percent of your caseload will cancel or no show and a given okay. is on vacation or yeah, 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 whatever. Yeah. whatever. Um, so you have to account for that. And so um, these are the fun things I get to do in the designing process is figure out, you know, really how can I maximize uh, the use of our office, the use of our resources and space um, before going to the next step, which is um, growing and expanding, which is where I'm at now um, and freakishly doing growing by like three times all at once. So, I love it. But yeah. only because of profit first, dude. Literally. I love it. I love yeah. it. My sister, yeah. I love it. <laughs> one, one analogy comes to my head, and maybe this is a bad analogy, but just sprung to mind, is you know the metrics, it's kind of like a, a car. And it's very simple. You push down the gas pedal and you look at the metrics and you see the RPM go up and you may see the speedometer go up. And then you can say, okay, if we push down the gas pedal harder, it'll make these things go. At a certain point, you push down the gas pedal and the speedometer uh, doesn't go any faster. The RPM keeps going, but the speedometer actually may start slipping back a little bit. And then it's like, oh, maybe, well, this is a manual transmission thing, so you got to know how to drive a manual, but oh, maybe I'm in the wrong gear. Yeah, I got to shift into a different gear. We would, most of us are trying to be the engine. Most of us are sitting there like Fred Flintstone with our yeah. feet and just trying to work harder. And that will never give us the results. When you move to the design phase and you manage your business by numbers, the impacts, we, you know, we make a little shift here and we see the numbers go up or down and then we can say, oh, that was not it, shift here. The impact we can have is huge when we start managing by numbers. Yeah. But if we're inserted in the business, Fred Flintstoning our way through it, we're going to get exhausted and frustrated because we're not going to make much progress. Have you used the Fred Flintstone analogy in any of your books? Because I haven't and I really, I love it. It's yeah, I haven't. So now okay, I, haven't I was going to say, I haven't read it, but you, you should add it in your next book because it's uh, a very good analogy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I will. Now I will. <laughs> um, those were all my questions. I really wanted to get into just you talking a little yeah. bit about the clockwork and then the QBR and the 4D. Um, I, I think with the ACDC, that would be a whole nother. Oh, whole that's nother. a whole discussion. Yeah, we can do as a bonus one day. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I want to just say thank you again, because I know your time is very valuable and you're writing books and doing things all over the world. So again, I thank you for taking the time out to talk to our listeners and, um, and writing amazing books that are making a huge impact on, on businesses. Well, it's my joy. And, um, and, and sincerely, I want to thank everyone that's watching and listening in yourself, Maureen, you are the ones having, you're having the impact. Like, look at the good work you're doing. I just hope to provide the recipes through my books, but you guys are the ones who are cooking it up and actually seeing the results. So, yeah. uh, I equally thank everyone um, yeah. and keep, keep doing what you're doing. Show yeah. the world. Yeah. And, uh, we look forward to seeing you at our group practice owners oh, conference that's coming up. <laughs> awesome. Get ready for my energy. Yeah. Uh, we're going to have an amazing, fun time together. We are. I already know it. All right. Well, thank you again. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Group Practice Exchange Podcast. We'll see you next week.